Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. So as we read with what Aaron shared with us this morning, we got our moment sort of teed up for this moment that we discover that Jesus, in fact, has risen. But before we get to that, we're going to spend this morning looking at that amazing moment that led right up to that. There's a little bit more to the scene to fill out. This week I was reading a devotional by a group of different um, uh, uh, contributors for Holy Week, and I was reading one by Philip Yancey who talks about this gut-wrenching moment of the irreversible. We've all had these moments. Some of them are little and silly. You, you trip and you break your favorite coffee mug, or you accidentally blurt out a secret that you weren't supposed to say, or maybe even a harmful word that you can't take back. And in all of your being, you're like, oh, if I could only go back just a couple seconds. But the irreversibility we also have all felt comes in much heavier moments as well. Maybe you get that phone call that says, your son was just in an accident. Meet us at the hospital, like my friend got on Good Friday. Or maybe it's like a text that I've received before that just says, as we've been waiting, she's gone. You know that moment. You hear something that just the whole world just changed. You would do anything to go back a few minutes before the moment when your doctor said the word cancer. It feels so irreversible. If only I could go back. This cannot be happening. And as Yancey says, Easter hits a new note, a note of hope and faith that what God did once in a graveyard in Jerusalem, he can and will repeat on a grand scale for the world, for us. Against all odds, the irreversible can be reversed. That's what we celebrate on Easter morning. That's how the whole world literally changed in this one moment on the original Resurrection Sunday. But first we sit in the perplexing moment just before that realization comes that the Lord indeed has been resurrected. So when we last saw Mary Magdalene uh, following in the book of John, the Gospel of John, we last saw Mary Magdalene at the foot of the cross. She was weeping and watching in horror along with a few other faithful disciples as Jesus died, watched the actual path to death. This was not how they thought things were going to go in the triumphant entry into Jerusalem just a few days before when they walked alongside Jesus and people were crying out, Hosanna, save us, praising him, calling him the Messiah. The Messiah is here. It's happening. And yet these faithful disciples watched on the path as Jesus humbly, willingly walked as one foot in front of the other, false trial, beating, denial, betrayal, ridiculed, and he did it all without a fight. They must have just wondered, how did he let this happen? And Mary's weeping as she sees him now hanging lifeless on a cross. That's where we lost, saw Mary Magdalene. And in this moment, after Jesus has died, we see two unlikely followers of Jesus ask Pilate for permission to take down his body and bury him in a new unused tomb. We're going to pause here for just a second and not rush past these two who are listed because this is actually remarkable. Joseph of Arimathea, we know, is a secret follower of Jesus. 
We also know that Nicodemus previously came to Jesus at night under the cover of darkness to secretly ask his questions of this rabbi, this man, but he wouldn't come out in the, in the open. He did this by cover of night. And now these two, who previously had been in the secret, are standing in the day. We know that because the Sabbath darkness had not yet set. And so it is in the day that these two boldly ask in the light to take down this body and take it to a tomb before sundown. They have with them expensive perfumed ointments that, to treat Jesus' body. Note this. Remember a couple of days ago, uh, Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, anointed Jesus' feet, and the disciples were aghast at the, at the expense of that perfume. The amount that they have here is literally 100 times that which was used to anoint Jesus' feet. This is a kingly amount, an obscene amount. So you see the lavishness that they are using on Jesus' body as they are in the open honoring Jesus. They have nothing to gain and everything to lose, and they perform this last service to this strange king in the open and they place his body in a new unused tomb in a nearby garden and then sundown sabbath rest everything needs to stop for this day for from sundown to sundown sabbath rest and yet i imagine the least restful sabbath anyone had ever experienced think about peter Peter had denied Jesus, who he had claimed he would go to die with Jesus, and yet he denied him three times, and then Jesus was crucified. So Peter is not only dealing with the heartbreak of everything that's gone wrong, but he's got that sour pit in his stomach of guilt and shame, knowing it will be irreversible to apologize to Jesus for that denial and betrayal. And think of this restless Sabbath for Mary. She wanted to just go tend to the body of her beloved friend and rabbi. But she has to wait and can't do anything until sun comes up on Sunday. Before she even looks in the tomb. So she, Aaron took us to that fateful morning. That stillness has been waiting. And they run to the, they walk to the garden. Mary walks to the garden. They run back, run back to the garden. There's this hum of activity that's happening. And She looks at the tomb, goes to tell the others. They all rush back. It's a really crazy moment of not knowing what's going on, but somehow the stone has been rolled away. This is a very heavy stone. This is not a good sign. They don't know what's happened, but she just says, they've taken his body. I don't understand. What's the explanation? What could have happened? So as a few of them run back to this tomb, they find the linens strangely left behind. Why would a grave robber go through the work of unwrapping and folding linens? What is happening? And at this point in the story, we read that Peter believes. But I don't know if we know quite what Peter does believe. Peter has believed before. He was the first to declare Jesus was the Messiah, and then he denied him. And Peter's been known to be impetuous. We don't know what he believed, but he believes something His faith is stirred at the sight of an empty tomb, and he knows something altogether new is happening. He and John run off to discuss the development with the others, but but Mary, Mary stays in the garden of the tomb, just weeping. 
she encounters two angels dressed in pure white robes, and she doesn't even seem to notice she is having a supernatural holy encounter. She's not even phased. This, to me, suggests that she's such a hot mess of tears and just, uh, just destitute that she's not even engaging her surroundings. She's not even aware of what's happening. And so these angels are there, and she's just, they say, why are you crying, dear woman? And she just says, they've taken away my Lord. I don't know where they've put him. And and the angels are no longer on the scene. We don't know. Mary is clearly in a state of just, um, I don't know, just a a mess of tears and overwhelmedness. And she still is standing there in the garden. And she encounters another man, a man she mistakes for a gardener. He asks the same questions that the angels ask. Why are you crying? Who are you looking for? And she just hysterically says, he's gone. Just tell me where you've taken him, and I'll go get him. I don't know what her plan would have been, Mary, alone, to do this. But I'm not even going to be mad at you. Just tell me. Tell me where you've taken him so that I can get him. I'll figure it out. And the gardener says, Mary, her name, regardless of the goobers and tears and probably crying hiccups that she has, she knows those That voice, the way that Jesus speaks that name suddenly illuminates to her who it is. Through her foggy mind, she knows that voice, Mary, when he speaks the name. She didn't know how, but she knew it was him. He's here. Everything changes. Can you imagine the delight and yet the complete and utter confusion? She had been at that cross. She followed them to know which tomb they used. She watched the stone get rolled closed before she went on her way for Sabbath. She knew all of this, but, but she must have been so delighted in that confusion. And here we have a tender, world-changing moment happening in a quiet, still garden. We can't help compare this moment to another garden that we know well in scripture and another fateful day. Consider this, in the Garden of Eden, where God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, acting together in perfect unity and an overflow of love, God created life and flourishing, thriving, shalom, justice, mercy, love, all of this in perfection. And in that garden... Evil came in and broke it all, offering in temptation to Adam and Eve. Evil breaking in to corrupt the flourishing, bringing all that has fallen and anti-shalom into the equation. In that moment, as flourishing is shattered, we feel that seeming irreversibility again. It's not how it's supposed to be. It will never be Right again, you feel the seeming finality of that breaking in in the Garden of Eden. But now, on the original Resurrection Sunday, in this moment, we see this reversed in another garden by this gardener. N.T. Wright says, here he is, the new Adam, the gardener charged with bringing the chaos of God's creation into new order, into flower, into fruitfulness. He's come to uproot the thorns and thistles and replace them with blossoms and harvests. 
all the evil that the enemy first introduced in the Garden of Eden, Jesus has taken upon himself as we've been talking about the last few weeks. So Jesus not only took on our humanity as God's self, came into our humanity, he not only took on the darkness that haunts our human condition, he took on the sin of of curse of sin and death. He took that upon himself, though he himself was without sin. Darkness gave Jesus all that it had, and Jesus defeated all of it, every bit. We've been talking the last few weeks how the cross shows us the love of God, that Jesus did this, took this on. It's the extreme love of God to enter into all of that and take it on. And so we see the love on the cross, and in the empty tomb, we see the power of our God. He showed strength, the strength of God that's stronger than anything that the darkness can give and throw at us. He took it on and defeated it. Not even death could defeat Jesus. What shattered in one garden is reversed in this moment, in this encounter. And as Mary goes to cling to Jesus, he tells her that she should not. I don't read this at all as a rebuke against Mary in any way. I think he's trying to say, don't hold on to me. This isn't like what it was before. I, you can't keep things as they have been. I'm still needing to go to the Father. I have more to do. Mary isn't put off by this. We have no sense that there's a rebuttal or rebuke or rejection at all. This is a promise. Hey, there is still more to come. I love, if you think about this moment, two things that I want to pause to consider. Jesus could have first appeared anywhere to anyone, in any big scene, to any big crowd, to any big wig. Jesus could have made this first appearance any way he wanted to, but he chose her. He chose here. He's chose this tender, uh, gentle moment. And as N.T. Wright points out, she is the first apostle, the apostle to the apostles, the first to bring the good news that the tomb was empty and a greater privilege yet, the first to see, to meet, and to speak with the risen master himself. This encounter is amazing. But here's something else to know in this this gentle, quiet encounter. Don't miss in verse 17 what Jesus says. Go say to my brothers, I am going up to my father and your father, to my God and to your God. All throughout the gospels, up until this point, Jesus refers to his followers as his disciples. He now just called them brothers. That's the first time. Jesus has referred to God the father or my father or um, uh just, just Father God, actually not Father God, just the Father, the Father who sent me. And now he says, my, my Father and your Father. It's the first time. Something altogether different has happened that has Jesus take on a tone of a brother and a shared Father. And so altogether new, he has made a new path that makes that a reality, that we can now call our God our Father and Jesus our brother. A new path has been created unlike anything before. And so what we see in the garden of the empty tomb is that darkness and death do not get the last word. I know that sometimes it doesn't feel like that's true. We still do see and experience, I'm not making light, of the very real anti-shalom, 
horrible injustice, division and discord that is on all of the news streams. There's darkness, there's disease, and there is death. But none of that gets the final word. None of it gets the final word anymore. There is still more to come. And Jesus' resurrection ushered in that promise with an astounding demonstration of the reversibility of all that is death and darkness. The reversibility has been ushered into this garden moment. Our God is stronger than any darkness the world could dish out. The word from the beginning, as John calls Jesus. The truth of a greater story. God's redemptive story crescendos on Easter morning. And it's a reminder that the truth is always worth repeating. That this ushered in something altogether different. And I want to point out as we end, John 20, 22. We usually stop with the declaration. I love this moment. Mary goes running back to the disciples and says... He's here. I saw him. It is real. She witnesses and they believe her and it's true and it's beautiful. And usually I end Easter morning there, but I want to end it a couple verses later this morning. In John 20, 22, we see that Jesus encounters the disciples, more of them, and he breathed on them and gave them the Holy Spirit. Speaking of that other garden in the Garden of Eden, does that sound familiar? where God's self, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God breathed the very life into Adam's lungs. He breathed on him. And here Jesus does the same. He breathes on the disciples and the Holy Spirit comes. We can't miss this part in the crescendo of God's story. He gave them the Holy Spirit just like he promised he would do in John 16. When I go to the Father, you will have the advocate. Just like he was suggesting to Mary, don't cling to me. There is more to come. It's the Holy Spirit, God's self, in and with the people of God for a presence in the story that is still being written. The story of God that's still being written includes the Spirit of God making all things new through the Holy Spirit at work. The Spirit is present with us in the various living rooms uh, in Denver with Aaron and Sunghei and all around. The Spirit is with us still writing the story of God. God is alive, present, and active. That's what we celebrate on Easter morning. God is still loving and powerful and in the business of renewing all things with that kind of power, both in the little moments here and the fullness of a story that is yet to come. That's what we celebrate Easter morning. That's the story that bears repeating and reminding of one another all the time, not just on Resurrection Sunday. And so we are going to stand up together again, if you would, and we are going to worship and praise God Speak these truths regardless of experience and just know that our God, Jesus, is risen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.